back listeners to our november edition of the peds ortho podcast brought to you by posna this is julia sanders from children's hospital colorado and we are pleased to welcome back puya hosenzada assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at WashU in st louis um, we also have our full crew back together so we have carter clement from new orleans craig lauer from vanderbilt uh, and josh holt from iowa so we're happy to be all here today to discuss cp hips so uh, we'll be discussing with Puya his recent publication in JPO titled Failure of Hip Reconstruction in Children with Cerebral Palsy, What Are the Risk Factors? So this is a great topic with a ton to discuss. So um, maybe we'll just kind of start with the basic findings. So Puya, your paper showed a failure rate after hip reconstruction of 13%. And age less than six, preoperative migration percentage greater than 70% were both predictive of failure. And nasotabular osteotomy was protective against failure. So can you tell us a little bit about what your algorithm is for hip surveillance in your neuromuscular population in St. Louis? Thank you, Julie, and the group for the invitation to this podcast again. So, you know, hip surveillance, we follow, you know, the, the original guidelines from um, Australia. So start with the uh, hip x-ray at age two for uh, every child with cerebral palsy, and then based on their GMFCS level, uh, the frequency uh, of that is determined every year, every two years, or every six months. So as that's how we're uh, looking at uh, X-raying these hips in these children. And as we all know, about 30% of them in general will develop hip dislocation or subluxation at some point during their development. And as we all know, I mean, uh, CP hips, we know that mo- most of them, when they're dislocated, become painful and reconstruction is typically performed to put these hips back in the socket and uh, result in painless uh, located hips in these children. Fantastic. Yeah, I I think that's, as you said, kind of the gold standard for for surveillance. So that's great to hear. And then, you know, one thing that's been really a a hot topic, and I think continues to be a hot topic is when you decide to add the acetabulum. So um, in your cohort, we had about 51% of patients that underwent isolated femoral osteotomy, 41% underwent both femoral and acetabular osteotomies. So kind of what was your previous decision-making, you know, thought process on when to include an acetabular osteotomy and has this study changed that thought process? So in St. Louis, based on, you know, the the previous publications that Dr. Schoeniker and Dr. Gordon had, I think uh, in early 2000s, we've been one of the centers that have been having a really low threshold for doing adding acetabular osteotomy as a part of the one stage of reconstruction children with cerebral palsy. If you look at the failure rate in our study is about 13% compared to about close to 30% in other studies that, um, you know, there is less uh, prevalence of doing acetabular osteotomy. Uh, so I, I think the way, and we have also looked at, does the, you know, acetabular dysplasia remodel in these kids after uh, doing a femoral osteotomy or after hip reduction? Uh, and we have also found that, you know, uh, these are not like BDH kids. The acetabular dysplasia does not remodel and does not improve after an isolated femoral osteotomy. So typically for me and for us in St. Louis, the way it has worked that if there is an acetabular dysplasia present at the time of uh, hip surgery, that will be addressed by an acetabular osteotomy. So 
we don't rely on remodeling after uh, proximal femoralsky. So we're trying to give um, people something to look at uh, or something to measure to decide if an acetabular is needed or not. That's the reason I picked acetabular index of 25, which shows acetabular dysplasia in these children. And actually, I think, as you quoted, I think it decreased the failure rate in that cohort about four to five times. Yeah, and that's an incredibly uh, strong finding. And I think that's one of the really good takeaways of this is, um, you know, we don't get a lot of those really good cutoffs and guidelines um, in this population. So that was super helpful. Um, How do you do your pelvic osteotomies? So majority of these children that have had the hip surgery, you know, a lot of them were done by Dr. Schenker and Dr. Gordon. And uh, based on their publication, they typically use the the Pemberton-style osteotomy. So it's the similar osteotomy that is done in children with DDH. I personally tend to tend to do a more of a Diego or San Diego style osteotomy, but the majority of children in that study, I would say about at least 80% of them had Pemberton osteotomy. Okay. Do you think it personally matters? Do you personally think it matters rather? I don't think so. Okay. I think they all work. <laughs> we all have our preferences, but I think it, it all does the same thing. It's, I think the most important thing is probably the lateral coverage. And all of them get the lateral coverage and we can argue which one gives more anterior, more posterior. And, you know, I think people have strong beliefs in that. But and I, I believe San Diego works better. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I mean, if you look at our study and most of them have Pemberton, so I don't really think that matters. Perfect. Thank you. So kids that, you know, come back with subluxation or dislocation after surgery can be really challenging to manage. And I think these are the ones that, that make us all really, really sad when we see them in clinic. So about 45% of the patients uh, of the so-called failures in your study required reoperation. So how do you make that decision to reoperate? And then how do you counsel the family about reoperation? So I think the decision for the reoperation, of course, you know, it depends uh you know, it's kind of a conversation with the family and it depends on, of course, the, the age of the child. I think if you have a migration percentage of 50% uh, and the t- child is seven and still growing, you know that there's a high chance of this hip going out. And I think it's, 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 a, it's an easier surgery to address at that age versus you have, you know, a hip surgery on somebody that is now seven years post-op, they're 16 or 17 and 60% out or 50% out, I think that would be a different conversation, especially if the child is asymptomatic. So I think if they're, they're, they're asymptomatic, they're older, and they're like six or seven years post-op, and they try radius or close, and you don't think this is going to progress, I think those are the ones that I would recommend kind of surveillance and continued monitoring if they're asymptomatic. And the, the ones, of course, that are younger and the hips uh, redislocate, I always tell them why this happened. You know, I think most of these kids that you can see for our study, there are the ones that have had uh, hip surgery before age six. I tell them, you know, uh, whatever the cause of the the, the deformity in cerebral palsy, hips, uh, we did not get rid of that. I mean, it's still there. And you know, he or she had a growth spurt, and some of the correction that we've done has been undone. And um, now, after age seven or eight, when we do this surgery, we uh, redo. Sorry, when we do this surgery, we expect this to have a much lower chance of failure, and hopefully, will uh, be the last surgery that they're having. So, and I always, I think the other thing about this study is, I and it gives me good numbers to code the patients when I tell them, you know, we're going to do the surgery, or why are we going to wait till age six? That's my preference. If we can, if the hips are not fully dislocated, try to wait until age six. I'll tell them, you know. We go from 
chance of failure rate to about only five or six percent. So yeah, that's super helpful for families um, to have those numbers, I think. So speaking about, you know, the, the reasons for dislocation in kids with cerebral palsy and neuromuscular disorders, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about GMFCS level. And, you know, your study didn't find specifically an association between GMFCS and failure rate, but there is kind of that discussion about increased neck shaft angle with higher uh, failure rates. And you did show some trend with increased neurologic involvement. So can you share your thoughts on kind of that association, um, why you don't think you got a strong statistic association uh, with GMFCS and and that kind of relationship? I think uh, the reason is probably as we didn't have a large cohort of GMFCS 2s and 3s. I think most of our patients with GMFCS 4s and 5s. I think that is the main reason that we did not see a big difference between them. And, you know, all these are uh, retrospective chart reviews. So there may be some, you know, inaccuracies for GMFCS classification when you do that retrospectively. So I think that there's uh, having the mostly the, the, the biggest score of those studies being GMS4s and 5s. I think that's probably the reason. Okay. But you do think that there is an association with higher yeah, GMFCS level? Absolutely, I think so. And I think the GMFCS5, and I think even if you want to look at GMFCS5s who are more involved and are trach-dependent and G-tube-dependent, I mean, I think the, the, the higher the level of the neurological injury and tone, of course, it definitely plays a role, yes. Fabulous. Okay. Well, great. I don't want to totally dominate this. So, uh, Carter, Craig, Josh, if you guys want to jump in and, and ask any questions. Ooh, pick me, pick me, pick me. Okay, go, Josh. Oh, yeah. Thanks for joining us again. It's really nice to have you on the program. Thanks, so, Josh. Thank you for taking the time. So, you kind of um, touched on my question, and this is this is the hard part for me, and it's a two-part question. So, you know, in your paper, in the discussions, you talked about not necessarily delaying surgery to get to an age threshold, and I think probably trying to walk a, a party line, you have to say that. But as you said, you know, ideally, if you can milk things along a little bit and get them older, like you said, ideally you wait till six. Practically, what does that look like for you? If they're three or four and they're 60% out, I don't think anyone's going to say wait for two years or three years. But do you, I mean, if they're four and a half or five and they're 50% out. Is your preference to give them an extra 12 months, even if you know they're going to come out another 10, 15, 20%? Yeah. What, what I have typically done is if they're over 60%, so if the hip is subluxed and, you know, basically the Shenton line is broken, I don't know. I know we don't use that typically in um, CPFs, but I use it especially. I mean, like if, if the hip is subluxed and they're, especially if, if it's more than 60% and they're kind of over age four, four and a half. I, I, I have no issues proceeding with, you know, um, hip reconstruction, letting them know that, you know, because I think, it, as I said in the paper, you don't, as we talked about in the paper, you don't want to delay too much. We know that the hips that are dislocated, they're already, the, the damages has started happening on the, yeah. the cartilage and you may miss uh, an opportunity, you know, to prevent painful hips due to arthritis. So, um, would I, you know, do a VDRO on a three-year-old with a forty percent migration percent or a fifty percent? No, but um, if if it if it, the hip is subluxed and the Shenton line is broken and you know it's just over sixty percent, I think, especially if they're over age four, uh, I'll definitely do that. And if they're younger than three, of course, there are other options that I typically have done uh, isolated soft tissue release, letting them know that 
they will require hip surgery later on. So the main reason for that soft tissue release is to delay the hip fully dislocating before age six. So if you if you have, for example, like a micro of 40% in a three-year-old spastic quad with tight adductors and you uh, get rid of the uh, you know, in the adductors, I know the hip will not go in fully and it will come out, but I think it will stabilize the progression, meaning you know, it will stay at that 40, 50% for another two or three years. Yeah, perfect, perfect. And that's actually my second question was just that. So interested in your thoughts or where it may factor into your algorithm, the medial proximal capital femoral hemiopyphysiodesis. And, you know, there's been four or five studies now, obviously just two to three year outcomes that have shown, I think, pretty good early results of at least maybe not, I think aggressively getting some remodeling of the femur and maybe some remodeling of the pelvis just because they're younger, obviously. But in my mind, I use it more as a stabilizing adjuvant to soft tissue releases, adding a single screw that's relatively benign to that has been for me what I do to kind of get that three-year-old hoping to get another two, three years, four years until you're doing a pelvic or a pelvic and a proximal femur osteotomy. Is that something that you guys do or have had much yeah. experience with? Yeah, I have done, I would say probably 10 to 12 of them maybe. So I do that. I think that I developed some sort of an algorithm, you know, age between, I don't know, three to six migration percentage between 30 to 60%. So if they're kind of like not more than 60%, but between, 30 to 60 percent and uh, you know next shaft angle is 140 uh, so you have a cox of alga i usually put the screw I, I always use an arthrogram because as you know there is i mean you don't know where the epiphysis ends at that young age and you want to get as medial as possible i have done that and i think i have seen good results in some not all of them i think after about a year or so you will see that screw kind of backing out uh losing some purchase into epiphysis and you may have to redo them. But I have had some patients that I'm very surprised how much remodeling or actually like a correction of Cox of Alga has happened, you know, especially if, as you mentioned, it's done with, um, you know, soft tissue release. Perfect. Hey, Puya, it's Craig. Um, I, uh, hey. I just want to congratulate you. Awesome study. I really love the takeaway, as Julia had mentioned. Um, I think that um, that's some really elegant statistics there to kind of substratify on when to do the acetabular osteotomy. I wanted to ask about neck shaft angle. You mentioned in the uh, in the manuscript that you guys aim for like 115 to 125. Um, now, all of us train at the same place, and I think that Dr. Chambers had kind of taught us, you know, maybe ambulatory, he would go up that high, but for the non-ambulatory, I think he would go a lot lower. So I was wondering, you know, how accurate were you guys in getting that range? And I, I'm wondering if whether recurrence is related to, you know, the post-op correction and neck shaft angle. Um, and I don't know if you've looked at that or whether you just have a sense of whether that matters or not. Yeah, I, I think it does definitely matter. I think the younger the child is definitely, you want to get a more correction because, you know, there are studies that shown that, you know, 95% or 90% of the various deformity are created in a child uh, younger than four will kind of remodel. I typically, for my GMFCS fours and fives, try to bring them to somewhere between 90 to 100 and for GMFCs, threes and ambulators between, you know, around uh, 115 to 125. I know among the study, Dr. Gordon's kind of feel the same way as you know. Um, uh, Dr. Schenecker uh, doesn't create that much varus. Um, you know, he's a hip surgeon, so he thinks varus is pathologic. That's what he calls pathologic varus. Yeah, but I, I go somewhere between 90 to 100 for non-ambulators and uh, around uh, 120 in the ambulatory population. 
population. And as as we all know, the measurement as a, of the neck shaft angle, unfortunately, is very unreliable. It's really positional. So I think that's one of the limitations of this study and any other study that looked at the neck shaft angle. The, the other thing I was interested in, obviously, um, because of the, the neurosurgery presence at St. Louis, there's a large SDR population. Um, granted, those are usually the ambulatory kids, and they're, um, they're not as much maybe in this cohort. But I'm wondering if, and we already talked about the role of GMFCS and how it, wasn't, it didn't really pan out in this study, but I'm wondering if tone plays a role at all. You know, if you've seen less recurrence of deformity, if they have low tone, whether it's controlled via SDR or just really well-controlled systemic medications or baclofen pumps or anything like that, if that plays a role in recurrence, what your thoughts are on that? Yeah, I agree. I think that does definitely play a role in recurrence. Uh, if that tone is treated, we expect it to see a lower rate of recurrence. Of course, I can't say that scientifically because we didn't look at that in the study, but uh, and if you, I mean I've seen I've taken care of a lot of kids with uh, SDR who've had hip dysplasia, and actually their hips look completely different. You know, even if they look at the X-ray, you see that uh, there is just some widening in the joint space and kind of look more like what you would expect to see in a myelo hip than a, than a CP hip because of the low tone. Oh, interesting. Well, I will be the last to uh, give some congratulations on the paper. I also. Uh, I'm super impressed and really like to have these numbers that we can use. I was hoping to take us maybe a tiny bit off topic and hear, if you don't mind, about your approach to the patients that come in who already have a dislocation. How does age or other factors, um, cartilage quality weigh into your decisions, or are you just putting them all back in and giving them a chance? I assume you're talking about older patients, right? Well, I would say five and up, maybe the ones that come in with a hip that's been out for a while. All the way, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts all the way up to so young yeah, adolescents. Yeah, so the way I look at it, if there is already degenerative joint disease, you know, sometimes you see these, especially in the kids that are seven and eight, that they're riding, they're not fully dislocated, and they're riding on the, the superior part of the acetabulum, the cartilage and cartilage. And you see that the cartilage is gone, they've already developed some degenerative joint disease. These are typically the kids that are painful. I, I think if you do hip reconstruction on them, they will get worse. Uh, so I think that's the patient population that if some element of degenerative joint disease has already developed, I don't think there is a role for uh, reconstruction. But if there is that only uh, the, uh, the femoral head deformity that we see in the kids with CP, that the lateral part of the femoral head has that indentation from the pressure of the gluteus medius, that is not a contraindication to hip surgery. And actually, there are some papers that have shown that, especially in very young children, that uh, cartilage deformity has a, a potential to remodel. And so in those patients who have some uh, degenerative disease, are you basing the decision-making just on the fact that they have symptoms or on the x-rays? Or how are yeah, you sort so, of deciding not to reconstruct? So if the hip is not reconstructable, meaning that there is degenerative joint disease already present, if the patient is asymptomatic, of course, I wouldn't do any surgery. If they are symptomatic, it will go with the salvage route. If they're ambulators uh, or have the potential to ambulate, I think that uh, we, we have all figured out and with the recent reports that the total hip would work great in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're non-ambulators, then we go to some form of uh, either a like a McHale procedure type with the proximal femoral valgus ostia and femoral head resection or uh, proximal femur resection. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Puyo. I really, really appreciate your time. It's great having you on the show. Thank you so much, Julia. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was information packed. 
Thank yes. you, Dr. Hershey. Thank you. Thanks. All right, guys. Um, well, Craig, do you have any uh, Peds Ortho podcast updates for us? Craig's tidbits? Uh, <laughs> only if you call it by its uh, official name of Craig's tidbits will I disclose. Um, you know, actually, Carter uh, alerted me to this, but we have our first episode with a thousand listens. So congratulations, Todd Milbrandt. He is still the top of the heap uh, with the most listened to episode. And 1k and our actually our statistics don't give us any more specific than that the number is too big to go down to individual listeners it just shows up as 1k so i think that's an exciting milestone for us yeah i think i really needed more honors right todd milbrandt just hadn't accomplished <laughs> quite enough so there you go dr milbrandt awesome well let's move on to the lightning round then um anybody who wants to go first I'll go. We'll stay on the hip topic for a little bit. I've got a couple hip papers um, that I'd like to get your guys' thoughts on. So uh, the first one is from Dr. Castaneda and his team and the consideration for Pavlik harness treatment risk factors for complication. 300 patients treated over a couple of years, ranging from dysplasia to instability to frank dislocation treated in a pavlic harness what percentage of complications did they find in 300 patients take a guess not including skin so they eliminated soft tissue irritation skin irritation is um like not working not getting the reduction considered complication no so complications are um Proximal femoral growth disturbance, femoral nerve palsy, pavlic disease, brachial plexus palsy. Five. Those. Five percent. Okay, Carter. Ten. Julia. One. Oh, Julia, you had a chance to go right down the middle of the goalpost. They set it up for you. Five, ten. So seven percent. Which I I thought that was pretty high, and that was almost six percent proximal femoral growth disturbance and one percent nerve palsy. How bad was a proximal femoral growth disturbance? Yeah, is that, good is question. that a euphemism for like terrible AVN? Or no, that that's like a, a euphemism of they had any asymmetry or delayed ossification of the of the epiphysis. So I would argue that that's not a complication of the treatment. That's right. a that's a outcome of the disease. Because again, same thing with you do an open hip reduction, right? That's always listed as a complication is some proximal femoral growth disturbance that everyone used to call AVN and, and much higher, much higher in dislocations than in dysplasia or instability. So I think it's a factor of the hip being out of the joint. So, but yeah, still 6%. That's certainly higher than I expected. Yeah, that's higher than I would have expected too. And I think what, you know, thinking about what do you tell parents about that number, right? Because I think that's a probably a scarier number than most parents want to hear. But if you're talking about that deformity being part of what we would expect from seeing hip dysplasia, that makes it a little more uh, palatable. Yeah, I would say the scarier thing to tell parents, though, is the other outcome of their study, which showed that in dislocated hips, only 50% of patients, right around 50%, 54% of patients had severin type 1 or 2 radiographic findings. So almost half had seven three or above radiographic findings at a couple of years post-op, which is a lot higher than I would have expected. That number jumps up to a higher, more success if you include seven three as in still located hips. But I was surprised that that number was also less successful than I would have suspected. 
All right, moving on. The next study, so this is Dr. Novias and the group at Boston Children's, looking at symmetry versus asymmetry in the proximal femur in patients with unilateral Perthes disease. So what would you guys expect to see? The caveat of this study is this is done at CT scans that were being obtained for secondary reconstruction or secondary surgery. So the average age of these CT scans was when patients were 14. So clearly this is a, you know, potentially remodeling type change more so than maybe a primary um, anatomic variant associated with Perthes. But what would you suspect the proximal femur would look like in the affected side versus the non-affected side? Are you asking what does a Perthes hip look like after it heals? I'm asking what sort of proximal femur deformity other than, uh, I, yeah, I'm just going to like, not even Like varus retroversion? Yeah, yeah, correct. Proximagna flat? It's, it's, a, it's a hard way for me to ask the question. I apologize. I'm just going to tell you the answer. <laughs> what they found is that, again, this is at least a few years after primary Perthes disease when they were looking to reconstruct is the affected side had significantly more moderate and severe femoral aniversion, which they classified as um, 20 to 25 or greater than 25 degrees aniversion. So hips that have Perthes in the end, at some point along the way, at least develop increased femoral aniversion compared to the contralateral side. Their study can't say whether that's a primary thing potentially related to the onset of Perthes disease or a secondary thing, but Nonetheless, something to consider if you're going in to do any reconstructive work on a post-Perthes patients, knowing that they are likely going to be much more anaverted than the other side and how that may factor into your, your treatment algorithm. Well, I think too just speaks to how we're better understanding the 3D deformity in a lot of hip pathology these days, right? Because we used to be going just based on an AP and lateral x-ray, which makes it really difficult to measure these things. So the more we understand about the three-dimensional deformity, I think the better we can treat these patients. So did they give any hypothesis? Like, do these patients get Perthes, lose internal rotation, and then over the years, maybe they model more antiversion to compensate for that loss of internal rotation? Yeah, that's exactly where my brain went. And no, they don't. And they, I mean, that's one of the limitations they speak of is that these are CT scans done, again, average at 14-year-olds um, after the disease has gone through the whole process and these kids become symptomatic for various other reasons. But yeah, that's my thought exactly is you see that remodeling potential is probably an adaptive thing more so than a pathologic thing. A lot to figure out there. Yeah, definitely. That's how we always feel after we talk about a Perthes article, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> true. We all just sit a here little more confused. Very confused. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Josh. You guys want to move on to our spine uh, spine topics for the yeah night? yeah we've got a couple studies both sort of peas in a pod out of the uh, pediatric spine study group. So the first one is in JBJS last month, and um, it is comparing magnetically controlled growing rods versus traditional growing rods, and they took early onset scoliosis patients of lots of different types of uh, early onset scoliosis. And then the cool thing was they matched them specifically to patients with the same etiologies and the same kind of curves who had been treated with traditional growing rods in the past. And then they basically tried to figure out in a few different ways, what was better. So uh, what do you guys think? How do you think it would shake out or what do you tell patients to sort of justify magnetic growing rods over the traditional ones. 
So I'll speak just because I had this conversation with the patient today is I suspect they showed less unplanned reoperations. And again, whether that's a factor of if you're planning to operate every six months, you make corrections, you <laughs> change your anchors if you need, you do things that are quote unquote planned, even though they're not planned versus with magic rods, any return to the OR is essentially unplanned. So that seems like a chip shot. They probably showed less unplanned surgery. They did. There's a lot less unplanned return to the operating room uproar, if you will, um, in the magnetically controlled uh, patients. It was uh, 26 in the traditional cohort versus 10. And then interestingly, they actually showed a better curve correction, not an enormous amount, but over two years of follow-up, they had about a 10 degree improvement in the uh, Cobb correction. And I had also read this one in detail to potentially present. I was very impressed. I actually didn't think there would be much of a difference in the Cobb correction. Yeah. I wonder if it gets to, you know, what we talked about last, uh, last month, where if you're doing more frequent, smaller lengthenings, does it stress the joints less? Do you get a little less fibrosis and autofusion? But uh, the authors attributed it to just the fact that sometimes with the magnetically controlled growing rods, your diameter of the rod is forced to be higher. And they thought, increased stiffness, uh, potentially, you know, the one thing Carter, I don't know if you saw this, they were all different inclusion eras. So it was like the traditional growing rod group was generally like patients that were treated a while ago, maybe even the last five or 10 years, whereas the magnetic control growing rod groups more recent. Right. And since you don't really get into fixation constructs, the data is not that granular. Although you do see that there are more single rod constructs in the traditional, you kind of wonder if maybe, more of the traditional growing rod group was maybe things we want to do now, like, um, you know, not as many proximal anchors, um, you know, more single rods like it showed. And maybe, maybe that our methodologies have just gotten better and the outcomes as a result of time, not necessarily the technology. I kind of wonder about that. Yeah, totally agree. Any retrospective study, even if you're looking at a prospective database, there's enough variables that I, I wasn't totally convinced that that 10 degree, the improvement in Cobb angle was really real. Um, but uh, I think we can all agree that the unplanned operation rate is real. And uh, so, you know, they've shown something with some numbers that we thought and hoped was true. All right. So next up, a very similar study. This one's in JPO. And again, it's the uh, pediatric spine study group. And again, they're comparing magnetically controlled growing rods to uh, traditional growing rods. In this one, they actually lumped together the traditional growing rods and vectors. And specifically now, it's a study looking at CP patients. So it's not just a, a group with a bunch of different kinds of early onset scoliosis. So what do you guys think? Any, any differences going to shake out in this population between magnetically controlled growing rods and uh, what they called traditional growth friendly to incorporate both the TGRs and the vectors? I'm going to say the same. You know, that prior study was severe curves. I don't know, maybe that group's just more fragile. You're going to delineate between the treatments a little bit more. Yeah, I would hope that the, uh, you know, more modern, quote unquote, technology would do better. That's what we always strive for is progress. Yes. So this study, they looked at the data two ways. They looked at the first two years and then they looked at final follow-up. And the title of the study is No Difference in the Rates of Unplanned Return to the Operating Room Between Magnetically Controlled uh, Growing Rods and Traditional Growth-Friendly Surgery in Patients with CP. So the conclusion was that there was no difference. What was interesting is if you really look at the data and you look at the final follow-up, 
there, there was a, a big difference. It was 43% in that traditional growing rod vector group versus 24% unplanned return to the operating room. So, you know, the authors said they, they wanted to really hone in on the first couple of years because you couldn't really control for how long treatment went on and what happened later in the treatment course. But on the other hand, you know, maybe two years isn't enough to really see the difference between these two treatments. So uh, I don't know. I think that could be a real difference. Um, so the authors were pretty convinced that in the first two years, there was no difference and uh, weren't confident enough to say whether that difference in final follow-up was real. The other thing they found was that the magnetically controlled growing rods, again, controlled the scoliosis better at final follow-up. But when they broke it down, they thought that that was because the vectors just didn't control it as well. The traditional growing rods probably were, couldn't prove it, but were probably about the same as the magnetically controlled growing rods. Do you guys uh, use magnetically controlled growing rods in your neuromuscular populations? Yeah, if it's early enough onset. Like mm-hmm. what, what age would you do that? in a neuromuscular kid? It would depend on thoracic height, but by eight, I'm certainly thinking about doing a definitive fusion. Okay. Yeah. What about you, Craig? Yeah. I, I still, I give equal consideration to mag, uh, magic or TGR. I'm generally, I'm pretty much just doing TGR. If the sagittal profile can't accommodate a magnetic neutral growing rod, or the patient's just too small to accommodate that length. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of early fusion. The UNC cohort that I kind of presented on this last year showed, uh, in my opinion, that for most cases you can go down to, you know, age eight. And a lot of the other studies will talk about seven or eight better for the care related quality of life. And the studies specifically that we looked at just talked about that you're not going to get a whole lot more height increase in a thoracic cage by going growing strategy in juvenile. So I'm kind of a fan of the early fusion and being done with it and letting everyone kind of move on uh, if the patient's the right, right fit for that. Yeah. That's why I was a little curious because I mean, I'm more than happy to let a curve get bigger in a neuromuscular kid to delay fusion until yeah, eight, nine. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't hesitate to do a fusion. I would rather have a curve get bigger and do that than put growth accommodating instrumentation in a six or seven year old just to try and earlier intervene on a curve. Yeah. I, I always had this impression that growing rods are just prone to disaster. And I don't think that's so much the case anymore, but it still takes maintenance. It still takes regular follow-up and you can't always rely on patients. So a fusion is something you can control every aspect of it, which is uh, kind of nice. Um, so let's see. The last article uh, that I think we had on the docket is uh, from uh, Norway, and this uh, is in JBJS this month, is gastronemus tightness, a normal finding in children. And I mean, we just love these ones where they ask the question outright. So Julia, Carter, Josh, is gastronemus tightness a normal finding in children? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I think it's got to be one of those things that can be normal and sometimes it hurts and causes pain and sometimes it doesn't. I think it's a secondary outcome of COVID or the COVID era. Man, I feel like I see way more kids in last year with tight hill cords. And that's the reason why they come see me is leg pain and their pediatrician says their hill cords are tight. So they come and see me and whether it's that they're just tight and that's normal or whether it's activity and more video games and things is causing hill cords to be a little tighter and more painful. I don't know. But yes, I mean, I would guess that a fair number of kids just have tight hill cords. Yeah. And so um, this was a cross-sectional study. They took uh, 
different kids in school, four different age groups, kind of progressing from younger to older. And in the older, they did see an increase as they got older, kind of closer to growth spurt, as you would expect, you know, kind of the idea that the bones are lengthening, the muscles have to catch up. Um, and it depended where you set the threshold. So if you say that, um, you know, with the knee extended, uh, if you can dorsiflex uh, up to five degrees or greater, um, interestingly, 55% could not get above that threshold uh, in the higher age group. Um, but if you set it to, if they can get above neutral, um, then only 4% were pathologic. So um, there's a lot of people who are not so tight, they're forced to toe walk obligatory, but there's some that are very tight and may have leg pain and things like that. So, I mean, I was never operating on these ones that can get flat um, <laughs> for concerns about heel cord tightness. I think we always tell them to stretch out, but it is interesting to know that it's maybe a normal thing. Even, I guess, normal things can cause pain though. And these kids, these are asymptomatic kids though, I'm assuming. They just pulled them out of school. So I, it was kind of all comers. Hmm. Yeah. It's pretty tight. That's like some tight Norwegians. I, I just, <laughs> yeah, I, I love the Scandinavian studies. They're just always so well done because the, the way that they organize them in the uh, national health care. It's great. They're like the Iowa of Europe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks, guys. And just wanted to thank all of our listeners out there. Hopefully we'll have some more good stuff for you next month. And as always, please reach out to us uh, at pedesorthopodcast at gmail.com or hit up uh, Craig or Carter on social media. And uh, thanks for joining us. Nice. Good night, everyone. Good night, guys. Good night, guys. Good night, guys.